So today I want to um, continue the line I had been discussing last two weeks ago. <laughs> it feels like eons ago. Again, to pick up uh, where uh, Aviva Zornberg left off, we're going to be discussing this pericope we're going to be dealing with is in Schmo's chapter four. And it's the episode of the night in the hotel. In red, you can see Vayehi Baderech Ba Malon. And Rashi says, uh, Malon means nighttime. You don't go to a Malon during the day. Vayehi Baderech Ba Malon. And then the next three verses are considered by Bible scholars to be the most enigmatic three verses of the whole book of Exodus. Vayifkeshehu Adonai. And the Lord sought, met, pagash, in the Hifil, vayavakesh hamiso. And he sought to kill him. Who's the him? He sought to kill him. Well, there are two characters here, because Moshe is leaving Midian. As you see verse uh, 20 above, right here. Vayikach Moshe es ishto. So it couldn't be her. Esbonov, his two sons, Gershon and Eliezer, could be one of those two. So it's either Moses, Gershon, or Eliezer. Vatikach Tzipporah Tzor, and Tzipporah sees the impending disaster, and she takes a flint, Vatichros, and she makes a cut, Karat, et Orlas Beno, so it could be that God is seeking to kill the Benah because she intervenes by saving the Benah by cutting his foreskin, Vataga Laraglov, and she throws the foreskin on his feet. Whose feet? Moshe's? The boy's? God's feet? Vatoma ki chatan damim atali. Atali, therefore, could be her husband, but then we know that Chatan refers to the circumcised one. So it could be she was throwing the Orla on the circumcised one's feet and saying, now you are a Chatan, you are like a Chatan of Damim. Or she could be talking to Moshe, meaning Moshe is the Chatan, the son-in-law of the priest of Midian. Vayirath Memenu, so the divine withdraws. And then she says again, Ozomra Chatan Damim Lamulos. What does that mean? Lamulos. Mila? It's a hapax. It's never mentioned anywhere else in Tanakh, that word Lamulos. So we go from words, Vayavakesh, he seeks to kill him, to action, Vatikach Tziporo et Orlobolo, back to words, Vatome ki Chatan Damim. Do you see how it's progressed? It's an inclusio. So there's wording, action, and wording. Now, what on earth is this pericope, these three verses, doing in the rest of the chapter? I mean, Vayoma Adonai Moshe, when you go to Mitzray and tell Paro this, and I'm going to strengthen his heart, harden his heart, and he won't sell the people. So I want to share with you where this should have been. This is where it should have been in our parsha. In our parsha, those statements, Vayoma Adonai Moshe, when you go to Mitzrayim, 
Tell Tharo, Koma Beni Bechori Yisrael. It should have been right after verse 1. Od Nega Avi Al Para Mitzrayim. Right? One more plague. Well, it doesn't say what the plague is. Oh, so we should have taken those two verses and stuck them in chapter 11. And chapter 11 then should have had these two verses stuck right in there to tell Paro what we're going to do. If you don't li listen to me and send my children to serve me, then I will kill your firstborn. It's missing from chapter 11. So this leads a whole slew of Bible commentators to understand what it's doing, what's going on here. The Ibn Ezra is very bothered by this, realizing that this is out of place. So just let me pick up where Aviva Zornberg leaves off. She says, why does God attack Moses in this uncanny way? The Gemara in Nadarim 31, we will look at, speaks of negligence. He was Nitrashel because he hadn't circumcised his infant. So, and the Gemara talks about why. I mean, he was on a shlichus. Um, he was right outside Mitzrayim. He knew that it takes three days to recover, and he was on a mission. But God realized that he hadn't circumcised his son. He was Nitrashel, according to the Gemara. For this, he is swallowed by a serpent from the head down, from the feet up, to the site of the circumcision of his own body. And we're going to come back to that in Midrash. Tzipora reads this macabre event as a diagnostic drama and circumcise the baby. Now, here's, here's Zornberg's take on what's going on. And it's very semantic. I suggest that the repressed meaning of this narrative, I love that word repressed, <laughs> we'll come back to that when we talk about Freud, lies in the play word, play on the word mila, circumcision, which in rabbinic Hebrew also means mila, the word, the language. It is Moshe's crisis of language that provokes God's attack, significantly in the malon, the hotel, malon, mila, mila. So there's a punning going on with this. The real issue is Moses' continuing resistance to language, to entering the world of others. The uncircumcised baby, the uncut foreskin, is a figure of Moshe himself of uncircumcised lips, resisting the embarrassment of language. And she quotes Kimchi, the embarrassment of language. I love that. And she leaves it at that. The whole of the particulars of rapture and the reflections of Sefer Shmos is given one paragraph by Zornberg. So let's, let's, let's go on and move on this notion of language and this inability uh, to express language. The issue of Moshe's identity we spoke about two weeks ago, and I want to stretch that, I want to stretch that even further today. Remember when he shows up in Midian, running away from Pharaoh because of his, the involuntary manslaughter charge. Remember, he struck him and then he died. So that was an intentional murder. He's on the run. And when he comes to the well, the daughters of Yisro say there is this Egyptian man. So he looked Egyptian. 
What was his identity? How did he become an Egyptian man in the minds of the daughters of Jethro? The simple answer is based on his clothing. He comes to the well and he looks like an Egyptian. If he looks like an Egyptian and he dresses like an Egyptian, he's an Egyptian. But the play meaning is not enough here. The daughter's description of Moshe as an Egyptian man is contrary to the reason for his arrival in Midian, for he came in the wake of his escape from Egypt, after having saved a Hebrew, one of his brothers, by killing an Egyptian, smiting a Hebrew. So it's difficult to ignore these two opposite meanings of the expression Egyptian man in this story. Chazal interpreted it that they deny him this notion of Egyptian man. To quote, was Moshe an Egyptian? I'm quoting from the Medrash. Rather, his clothing was Egyptian, whilst he was a Hebrew. The outside was Egyptian, the inside was a Hebrew. I've once told you my father was never allowed to wear his yarmulke on the streets of Vienna. And my mother never let me wear my yarmulke on the streets of London. She always when we would be walking on Shabbat Shabbat, put your, put your pea cap on. You have to be a Jew in the house and you have to look like a guy on the street. So his clothing was Egyptian, but he was a Hebrew. Okay, so when Moshe flees from Egypt, the consciousness of his identity remained in that country, together with his brothers. In the house of Pharaoh, Moshe fought the royal family for his identity and his identity with his brothers and their burdens. Whereas in the land of Midian, he found himself far away from the brothers and his country, and his identity was therefore put to the test. Just as Pharaoh's daughter saved Moshe from the waters of the Nile, and the house of Pharaoh was his refuge, so too the house of the priest of Midian was his refuge when he was destitute and persecuted. What could have been more natural at the time, in the course of those many days, when Moshe's full integration into his father-in-law's house, to the point of assimilating into his family and the people of Midian? Do you know how long he spent in the house of his father-in-law? He left Mitzrayim at 20. He comes back to Mitzrayim at 80. 60 years with the priest of Midian. Moshe proclaims his intention to preserve identity when he named his eldest son Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And when he eventually received his mission from God at the burning bush, he goes back to Yeter, his father-in-law, and says, let me go and return to my brothers that are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. The inner identity remained. It remained anchored in his brothers in Egypt and in no other connection. So his declaration when he named his firstborn means only one thing. Gershon, in the house of Pharaoh, I did not become an Egyptian, but rather I preserved my identity and my identification with my Hebrew brothers. So too in the land of Midian, I did not become a Midianite. Not for the sake of my dear father-in-law, who gave me a house, a wife, a family. Not for the sake of my wife, who lived all her life in the land of Midian. My firstborn son, who is also the firstborn of his mother, Zipporah, will be called after his distant brothers, who he's named. Now, 
how did Yisro and the Midianites and the rest of the family receive this declaration of Moshe? Torah doesn't tell us. They may well have begin, become angry or they may well have received Moshe, the strange foreigner, with acceptance and honor. It's also possible that Moshe went to tend the flock of Yisro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, as the Pasuk says, to the furthest end of the Midbar to distance himself from this tension. And in the meantime, Yisro and Zipporah raises Gershon, whose name contradicted that which was pre precious and dear to them. I like this idea that it is Zipporah who is raising the child. Yoel Bil Nun has this dramatic idea that, in fact, the reason Gershon was not circumcised was precisely for that reason. Circumcision, as we're told in Midian, remember the Midianites of B'nai Keturah, who is the second wife of Abraham, and therefore had to circumcise. Abraham instructed his descendants, Yishmael and B'nai Keturah, to get circumcised. Gemara says Mila, but not Priya. Okay, technicality. So Jews have Mila and Priya, they didn't. They just had Mila. So the Midianites would have wanted to circumcise him. So Yohel bin Nun says, Moshe going down to Egypt not having circumcised. Gershon was an act of self-identity. He didn't want to identify with the Midianite practice of circumcision. He wanted to keep that identity, and that's why he didn't. Now coming down to back to Mitzrayim, and he's going to tell Pharaoh, I'm, you're going to kill your sons. I'm, uh, God is going to kill your sons if you don't do this. Yisrael. Let's just go back to that statement. It could be that the reason that this psukim are placed right here is precisely because Ko Omar Adonai B'ni B'chori Yisrael. Am Yisrael is my B'chor. Send them to me. And how on earth do the Israelites protect themselves from the Malachamavet that is going to attack them on that night is by daubing the lintels with the blood of Mila. How is it possible then that Moshe Rabbeinu is coming to liberate them has a son who doesn't have that Mila? That is the dazzling interpretation of Yoel bin Nun. What on earth is going on with this strange pericope? And Ilana Pardes, this wonderful biblical scholar in Hebrew University, tells us that Zipporah, Vatikach Zipporah, the only one acting in this night drama in the hotel, isn't the only woman behind the scenes. We learnt in Bereshis how the women act behind the scenes. But if you think about it, Behind the scenes of the whole of Sefer Shmos are women. Number one, the midwives who are commanded by Pharaoh to kill the infants. Number two, the daughter of Levi, whose name is not mentioned in the Torah, but is known to us in Midrash as Yocheved. She gives birth to Moshe and hides him, allowing him to survive. The sister, whose name is similarly omitted from the text, but we know as to be Miriam, who watches over her brother from afar 
and offers the daughter of Pharaoh to bring a Hebrew wet nurse for the baby. And finally, the daughter of Pharaoh, who violates her father's command, saves the baby from death, calls him Moshe, and raises him herself. The important people involved in Moshe's birth, his survival, his maturation, are all women. And some of the women in the story of the redemption are especially significant, as the Midrash in Shihashirim tells us, Under the apple tree I awakened you. That romantic scene. Rebbe taught it was by virtue of the Noshim Tzidkonios, the righteous women of that generation, that B'nai Israel were redeemed from Egypt. So it was not only those particular women who were directly involved saving infants and helping Moshe to survive, they were also partners in bringing about redemption. Every woman who was prepared to go through pregnancy and give birth in Egypt was a partner in the redemption. Now let's focus on Zipporah. The first time Zipporah is mentioned by name is when she marries Moshe. And Moshe was agreeable to staying with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moshe. Now, this marriage to Zipporah is somewhat surprising. Why would Moshe want to marry a Midianite woman? At first glance, this woman seems to represent the opposite of what the other women that we have mentioned stand for. And Moshe's marriage to Zipporah seems to cause a delay in the process of redemption. Remember, he's stuck there for 60 years, during which time he's completely cut off from B'nai Israel. He tends to Yisro's flock in the desert. Well, who was this Yisro? We're told that he was the priest of Midian, but even Ezra goes further and suggests to us that he was the greatest priest of, of Midian. And not only that, he had separated himself from idolatry, and so they put him in Hiram. He was banished from the other priests of Midian. And Ibn Ezra goes further. He has a very long touch on this whole pericope. Every priest referred to in Tanakh serves either gods or idols. But Yisro was only a priest to God, El Elohim. So Yisro was not a priest to idolatry worship. There are other Midrashim that have a darker view of him, don't forget, but rather a servant of God. So he was a spiritual personality with great significance in which Moshe's character, maybe, coming out as a spoilt brat from, uh, from the house of Pharaoh, was molded. His whole spiritual place, his meditating in the wilderness, coming upon the mountain of the Lord, it's understandable that his relationship with Yisro was close. And maybe he lived in Yisro's home and they both worshipped the one divine God and nurtured his other's spiritual development. And remember, later on, Yisro will come to Moshe and bring Zipporah after having separated from her before Har Sinai and give him ideas about laws and Botedin and Sanhedrins. So the question arises is whether Moshe then had divorced Zipporah or merely sent her back to her father's house. So we can't go into, we don't have time to go into, but we will come back to this when Miriam says her Loshan horror. But the narrative is introduced by the word Vayifki Shehu Hashem, and God met him on the way. Vayifki Shehu Hashem. 
This is a unique manner of connecting with God. Usually the Torah describes God's word, Hashem Moshe Vayomer, or the appearance of an angel. Nowhere else do we find a meeting with God like this. But we know that Moshe was completely unique. Per el per adaberno. And Abarbelel notes, as does the Natsiv, that prophecy could descend upon Moshe at any time. So when he comes to the Malon to spend the night and busied himself with matters pertaining to getting a credit card, getting the room with a view, and not concentrating on the matter of his mission, then somehow the divine encounter becomes deadly. And it's Tzipporah, the daughter of Midian, who recognizes Vatikah Tzipporah who understands, who recognizes the covenant of circumcision, not Alpi Midian, but the fact that Am Yisrael has to perform this, this circumcision as a right for their redemption. It is Tzipporah who performs the circumcision and proclaims the special connection between God and Israel. It is Tzipporah who allows Moshe to continue with his mission on the supreme spiritual level demanded of him. And it's only later in chapter 18 do we discover that Tzipporah didn't accompany him, tragically that somehow she left him after this moment. Now, this chatanda mim atali, this idea of the bridegroom of blood, we have to dig a little bit deeper here. And, and, and what does this mean? We've looked at the pshat now. We understand that this was required. But what is this chatanda? What is this blood business? The daubing of the blood on the, on the lintel? the spreading of the blood of Mila. Who is she throwing Vatika Baraglov? Is she throwing it on Moshe's, telling him, this is the reason you nearly died because you didn't fulfill this commandment? Or is she throwing it on the baby Gershon's legs or is it on his genitals? It's a euphemism for his genitals. Now, God tells the Israelites to slaughter the Korban Pesach. And he says, the angel of death will pass, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. So Zipporah, by taking the foreskin of her son and placing the blood on Moses' genitals, he, she may be making a sign of protection similar to the sign on the doorposts. Like the blood of the lamb will protect the Hebrews, so the blood of circumcision will protect Moses. Very nice. And therefore, the plague of the firstborn is connected to these three verses, and therefore the two verses introducing them are not out of place. The account of the tenth plague has significant parallels then to the story of Moses' lodge and the attack at the lodge. I want to talk about Freud. <laughs> When Freud came to London, having escaped the Nazis in 1938, he was very insistent that he bring his collection of antiquities. And these were Greek, Roman, and ancient Egyptians. One of the, his favorites was Osiris protecting Horus. The wings of Osiris, the mother god, protecting Horus, the sun. And he loved that because for him, 
Uh, it represented the theory, both the Oedipus theory, the Cassandra theory, and the last work he ever wrote, which was to the B'nai B'rith uh, in a paper called uh, Moses and Monotheism. When he wrote that paper, most of the biblical scholars of the time uh, were incredulous, dismissive. It wasn't based on any fact to suggest that Moses was an Egyptian prince and the whole theory. But what the scholars failed to understand was that Freud, like Zornberg after him in his inspiration, looked at the text like a patient on the couch. And listening to a patient, one listens to the story that the patient is telling you, and you are looking for hints, repetitions, mistakes, gaps, slips of the tongue, jokes. These are all the techniques of listening to explore the unconscious desire of the text. And what Freud had taught us by reading Moses and Monotheism, albeit in not an academic way or a historical way, but in a psychodynamic way, was to open up that field of seeing the text as a patient on the couch, to reveal its underlying desire. So Ilana Pardes writes, in reading The Bridegroom of Blood, Freud provides an extended description and depiction of the antagonism in Egypt between the monotheistic religion and revolution of Akhenaten, with the ab abolition of all the other deities but the sun god, and the denial of the kingdom of Osiris in the realm of the underworld, the eradication of the magical practices of most Egyptians. This is a kind of demythologizing that some scholars say was the inspiration for the, monothe the original monotheism. Although that isn't monotheism, it's monolatry as opposed to idolatry. Monotheism is opposed to polytheism. That's much later. But the idea, in the Bible is meant, who is among you, among the pantheon of gods? No one. You're the best. That's what Akanfeton tried to do. It was a monolatry. But in the process of demythologizing, what he had done was relegate the feminine, Osiris, the magical practices and the mythic dimension. Now, what's interesting is, Lahavdil, Elephavdolus, I have mentioned this very often, that the Pshat and the Pshuto Shel Mikra refused any kind of underlying mythology, as we see many times, any kind of anthropomorphism is mistranslated by the Targum Unclus, so uh, Yad Hashem is really God's voice. There's all, all these anthropomorphisms we see in the Bible that reflect some kind of physicality or mythological uh, is, is suppressed, but then comes back bubbling up later in Midrash and in Kabbalah and in Hasidut. So you also have that same tension between the Pshat and the demythologizing, but this inability to hold that rational religion and on the surface bubbles up this wonderful, magical, mythical view in Midrash.
And so, as she says, Freud follows biblical scholarship only up to a point. He sets out to complicate the linear evolutionist plots by the hidden psychical phenomena unawares shape the history of the nation's character. And I love that idea. That is, that what, what Freud was doing by looking at the text and revealing the underlying distortions, the omissions, the disturbing repetitions, the palpable contradictions, signs of things the communication of which was never intended, means, according to Freud, that the Holy Writ was the dream of dreams. Which brings me to the Midrashic bubbling up. And I want to read to you from the Midrash Rabbah. And the Midrash Rabbah tells us something that I had mentioned in the beginning. Vayehi baderech bamalon. And it was on the way to the lodging that Hashem encountered and sought to kill him. What happened? What did Tzipora see? That's between the first and second verse of our pericope. Between Vayehi baderech bamalon vayifkisheul vayevakesh hamiso. What did she see between that verse and this verse to know what the problem was? We had mentioned a rational explanation. Oh, she did this intellectual analysis to realize that there's two types of circumcision. There's Midianite and Israeli. But the Medrash goes mythical on us. And the Medrash says, At you find Malach Shel Rachamim Hoyo. That it wasn't God. God wasn't doing it. Very often, it was a substitute of God. It was a malach. God doesn't kill. He's spiritual. He needs a malach to dress up like a man to strangle you. So it was a malach. But you know what? He was a malach shel rachamim. It was a malach of rachamim. Why? Because it says, Vayevakesh yudke vovke. doesn't say Elohim. Yudke vovke is the meters of rachamim. So it was a malach of rachamim, of course. <laughs> and from the... F- and and this angel was an angel of mercy. Despite that, so he wanted to kill him. Why? What did she say? How did she know it had to do with bris and choresis and chorus and, and mila? How did she know? The Medrash asks. But the malach came. And from what she saw him doing, she realized what the problem was. What did Sipora see? Bola lemoshe merosho ad hamila. Kivin sherasa Sipora shelo bal oso elo ad hamila. So she sees him coming in, swallowing him. Some say down to the mila, some say up to the mila. She realized that it was the Asek of the Mila. It could be that he came from above and from below, and the only thing that was left was his uncircumcised member. And from that she inferred, she realized, oh, this is the problem. This is why you want to kill him. The Yodokama Yotimikam. 
And from the fact that the angel was unable to swallow Moshe beyond his own Mila, because remember, he was circumcised, she understood how great is the power of circumcision to protect. So when then she takes the, the oral, she takes the, the circumcised foreskin and throws it at him and says, we've gone from action to words, Vatome, she says, Ki chatan damim ata. You are, you caused my bridegroom's bloodshed. Meaning, Chatani, Sipora said in a prayer, Chatani, Tiye ata natun li damim halalu. My husband, may you be given to me in the merit of the blood of the circumcision, for I have performed the mitzvah of circumcision. May you live longer. It's not a criticism the way the pshat implies. It's in the in the, it's in the subjunctive. May you live long because now I have caused you to live through the blood of the circumcision of Gershon, your son. What did Sipora see? And why is it the woman? Gomorrah has a big uh, problem in the Torah. He says from here... One mandama says a woman can circumcise. Look at Sipporah. Another says, no, it wasn't Sipporah. She got someone else to do it. We had to quetch the halacha here about whether a woman can circumcise. But what is going on here? This mythic bubbling up of what's really going on, I think, was beautifully reported by Robert Alter. This elliptic story is the most enigmatic episode in all of Exodus. It seems unlikely that we will ever resolve the enigma it poses. Nevertheless, it plays a pivotal role in the larger narrative and is worth pondering why such a haunting and bewildering story should have been introduced at this juncture. And here he comes with this bubbling up of the archaic. There is something starkly archaic about the whole episode. The Lord here is not a voice from an incandescent bush announcing that this is holy ground, but an uncanny silent stranger, a malach who encounters Moses like the mysterious stranger who confronts Yaakov Avinu at the Yabok ford in the dark of the night. One may infer that both the deity here and the rite of circumcision carried out by Tzipporah belong to an archaic possibly pre-monotheistic stratum of Hebrew culture, though both are brought into telling alignment with the story that follows about Marcus Bechoros. The anthropomorphic and mythic character of the episode generates a crabbed style, it's only three verses, as though the writer were afraid to spell out its real content, and thus the reference of the pronominal forms are ambiguous, who is the he? Who is the she? Who is done to what? Who is done what? Traditional Jewish commentators seek to naturalize and demythologize the story to a more normative monotheism by claiming that Moshe had, had neglected the mitzvah of Mila on his son. And that's why the law threatens his life. But what bubbles up in the deep recesses and unconsciousness of the text, a la Freud, sitting on the couch, is that Tzipporah's act reflects an older rationale for circumcision among West Semitic peoples than the covenantal one enunciated in Genesis. Here, 
circumcision serves as an apotropaic device to ward off hostility of a dangerous deity by offering him a bloody scrap of one's son's flesh, a kind of symbolic synodoki of human sacrifice. The story is an archaic cousin of the repeated biblical stories of life-threatening trials in the wilderness. The more domesticated God of verse 19 has just assured Moses that he can go back to Egypt, that everything will be well. We just had that two verses before. For all the men who seek your life are now dead. You are safe. The fierce, uncanny Yudke Vovke of this episode seeks to kill Moshe. It's the same verse, the same word, those who sought to kill you is the same word as right now. Just as in the previous verse he had promised to kill Pharaoh's firstborn, here he is seeking to kill Moses himself. And I think that what he is bringing out is this notion that all texts reflect a cultural self-identity. And Moses' self-identity now as he crosses over from the Malon into Egypt, has to undergo transformation once again. It's not a transformation in the head. Yes, his identity, I'm a Jew, my son is Gershon, I want to go back and see my brothers. That's all in the head. Deep down, we know for five times he had refused God's mission until the fifth time got angry with him and said, okay, I'll send Aaron with you. Deep down in his heart, he did not have that existential sense of identity that he could pull this off. And I think for us, the take-home message is twofold. One, to what extent we are determined by those unconscious desires that come bubbling up, whether we're on the couch of our own self-analysis and to what extent our professed identity as uh, Jews and as Jews on the street, Jews in the home, can be challenged in the night visions when, we fe we, when the, the dream work and the night work comes up. To what extent are we in line of the heart and the mind? And number two, of course, it is the women it is the women who protect. It's Osiris and later on Yocheved and the women in our unconscious desire, our mothers uh, who provide that switch and that connection between what we profess and who we really are. It is the mothers who tell us, be who you really are. And nothing really has, for me, in this last year, uh, exposed that difference between the self-identity uh, as COVID. Because COVID um, proved to me that, on the one hand, out there, there are people who have magical thinking and who believe that we are protected from the divine even though we don't follow the rational scientific guidelines that are evidence-based. But for me, what has that exposed? 
It exposed a crisis in identity because I thought until now I could keep living on both sides of that divide, that in my head I could be a scientist and a physician and follow evidence-based medicine and follow the science. And in my heart, I could go to the shtibel and I could dance around on Friday night and feel good and sing Luchododi and put up with the magical thinking because it made me feel good. But now I see, and COVID, the Rebbe COVID has taught me uh, that I can't sit on the fence and watch people coming to Malava Malka and not socially distancing and then go home and infect other people. I can't allow myself the luxury of that feel-good, uh, Hasidish feel-good, whether it's Breslov and whether it's our, our minion. I just, I, I, my identity can't tolerate that if I see people being uh, infected and dying uh, because of that feel-good type of um, religion. So I think that for me, reading this pericope, uh, there's a price to pay for the rational mind. There's a price to pay uh, for the cardiac good feel spirituality. And you don't really have to pay it until the Grim Reaper comes knocking. When Mr. Covid comes knocking, that tiny, uh, gorgeous round speck with those beautiful orange spikes <laughs> that is so deadly. Uh, it forces us culturally in terms of our own self-identity uh, to have to reckon with that split. And that's what's so beautiful about the Midrash, that this serpentine angel that would swallow like the serpent, whether it's coming from above through the head and your self-identity and your self-knowledge and your thinking that you can live in those words, or comes up from below and says, who are you fooling? Look at your addictions. Look at you as a person. Look at your failures. Look at all the people you've hurt. Look at all the people you're fooling uh, comes up, whether it's coming from above or from below. Uh, that night demon forces us, and we are saved by our mothers who tell us what the real identity is. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.